Welcome to City on a Hill Church, Forest Hills podcast. We exist to lead people to love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coahforesthills.org. something this morning, a statement that for every person in this room is true, is that everyone wants to be happy. Is there anyone here that just does not want to be happy? You're just all emo and you just don't want to be happy. There's none of us. All of us want to be happy. It's a universal desire. We want to be happy. But there are two questions about happiness that we have to answer. Number one, what is happiness? How do we define it? And then secondly, what makes you happy? Is, Is happiness something that's just kind of you know, dependent upon the person and we're all made happy by different things. But first of all, let's, let's define happiness. I do think sometimes in the church and Christianity, we make a false dichotomy between happiness and joy. We make a false division between happiness and joy. Some would say that, that happiness is the outward expression and joy is this inward feeling or contentment. And I, do, I don't think the division is as clear as we want to make it. I think joy, biblically speaking, is a satisfaction, it's a, a contentment, it's a disposition of the heart that does spring outward and, and express what we would call feeling or acting happy. But I think when most of us are talking about happiness, we're talking about inward. We're talking about soul satisfaction, contentment. And so when you ask somebody if they're happy with their job, it's not do I smile all the time at my work, it's do I find my job meaningful? Do, do I find meaning in my job? Am I happy with my coworkers? I'm not constantly checking LinkedIn for the recruiters to come find me. That's happiness and work. If someone's in a relationship and you want them to be happy, you'd say, you know, I, I want you to be happy. It doesn't just mean outwardly happy. You hope that they express happiness. But what you mean is that they feel loved, that they, someone values the person, they feel safe and secure, and that they're satisfied. So I believe this actually kind of a mixture of the two, joy and happiness, sort of two sides of the same coin, is an inward satisfaction that's often expressed outwardly. An inward satisfaction of the soul that often expresses itself in emotion. But secondly is what makes a person happy? I think it's a lot more common than we think. Uh, In 1938, Harvard started a study with a group of sophomores. They tracked 268 Harvard sophomores, tracked them up until 2018. And across this broad range of people, there's a broad range of outcomes, people who are getting the best education in the world, the same education. There were those who were very successful and those who ended up on the streets homeless. There were those who had great mental health and those who ended up schizophrenic. There were those who were physically healthy and those who were not physically healthy. And they had varying levels of happiness. The number one predictor of happiness, health, success was not the amount of money that they made. It was not how famous they were. It was the health of their relationships. Their relationships, being in a loving and stable relationship. And I'm not just talking romantically. I'm talking about friendships. Those people were healthier, happier, and more successful. It had an impact on body health. It had an impact impact on mental health and even the expectancy of life. And I think what we can boil happiness down to is this. True joy, true happiness comes from being known and being loved. When you are known and you are loved, you have the capacity for joy and happiness. And we see this in the story of Scrooge in in The Christmas Carol. We're not just talking about like Scrooge McDuck, if you watch the Disney version. We're talking about the actual Christmas Carol. Um, If you ever read The Christmas Carol or watched any of the movies, Ebenezer Scrooge is miserable. 
He's a miserable person. His nephew comes to him and says, why can't you be happy, uncle? And he says, if I can't happy, be happy, why should anybody else be happy? And you start to see the story of what led to the unhappiness of Scrooge is that he had all of these relationships that had fallen apart. His parents died young. Uh, the woman that he loved, he scorned and he lost her. He ended up losing his best friend. This man is alone. He's trying to fill the void of happiness with money. And no matter how high he stacked the money and no matter how few coals he put into the fire to keep him, him and, and, and uh, Cratchit warm, he wasn't happy. What we see at the end of the story is that the time that he becomes known and loved by others is where happiness begins to grow. And this is why Advent matters. Advent matters because Jesus came to bring you joy and happiness through giving you himself. Jesus giving you himself for you to be known and loved by God is the key to happiness. Now, maybe this morning you feel like you've got it all together. Like I've got enough friendships, I've got enough relationships, I've got good coworkers. I don't need any new relationships. I don't even feel like I need this from God. But I want you to know that every human relationship is a signpost. Every human relationship is simply an echo of the relationship that you were made for, to be fully known and loved by God. And this is why no human relationship can bear the weight of our soul's need to be known and loved. And this is why when you put too much pressure on another person, whether it's a spouse or a friend or a coworker or a child, they end up failing you and falling short because they were never designed to hold up your soul. But it's also why it hurts when we feel alone. For some, Christmas is not a happy time. The holidays are not easy because you've lost loved ones or you're estranged from loved ones. You, you feel the sense of loneliness. And in that same Harvard study, they actually said that loneliness kills. They said that, that loneliness kills in such a way that it is as much a factor of early death as cancer is. We can be known and loved and Jesus came to be with you to give you joy. And in him, you can find real joy and satisfaction. So this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 95 and the idea of how Jesus came as mighty God, the second name in our study of Isaiah 9, 6, how Jesus came as mighty God to give you real joy. So first, let's look at the invitation to real joy in Psalm 95. Psalm 95 has been described as the most clear explanation of worship in the Bible. Now, you're probably wondering, wait a minute, why did we switch the topic from joy to worship? I thought we were talking about joy and how I could be happy this morning. What's this have to do with joy? The reason is, is that you will worship what you look to, to for joy. What you look to to make you happy, you will ultimately worship. Because every single one of us worships something. No matter where you come from, no matter what you've done, no matter whether you grew up in church or any sort of religious organization or not, you worship because you were wired to worship. You assign value to what you find most valuable. You worship what you find most satisfying. And what you find most satisfying is going to get the most of your attention. So how do you know what you worship? A few questions. What does your mind wander to when you're sitting there by yourself? What is the filter for your decisions? What gets the majority of your time? What gets the focus of your money? When you think about all the priorities in your life, what is the last one to go? What's the thing that if you lost, it would absolutely crush you? That is what you worship because that's what you're finding joy in. And, and this is why at times we will prioritize our career over our friendships. 
This is why we'll prioritize our experiences over saving and putting some money in the bank. This is why we'll prioritize ease over serving others. And again, these are not necessarily bad things, but they can become competitors for your joy. They can become things that you're looking to for satisfaction because you're giving them your time and your attention and your trust. That's why we'll work those endless hours at work. And that's why we'll give our whole heart to a person who doesn't love us back. That's why we'll seek out success and power at any cost. And what's being said here is, what if there's a better way to joy? The writer of the Psalms says, oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us sing to our God. Let's sing to him. We tend to, to look to all sorts of replicas, all sorts of things that look like the real thing we're called to find joy in and give them our attention. We're being invited to something better. There was this bookstore when I lived in, in Birmingham, Alabama called Second and Charles. It was this giant bookstore in, inside of an old department store and it had books as far as you could possibly see, all these old used books. Well, outside the store, they had a, a bin that people would often just dump books that they thought were worthless in. And so I go, oh, go out there one day and I look and I see what appears to be an original copy of the first Encyclopedia Britannica. It's like, well, that's cool. So I pull it out of there and I go home and I start Googling. Google's a dangerous thing, right? So I start Googling and I look at this and I think, oh my gosh, if this is the real thing, this thing is worth thousands of dollars. I'm like planning a church with no money. I'm like, we're never gonna have to raise money again. It's gonna be the greatest thing ever. And so I look at this and I I start to look and I'm like, wait a minute. I, I go Google again and there's a replica that looks just like the real thing that's so good that it confuses even people who study this stuff. It's only worth a few hundred dollars. I sold it on eBay. It was a good day. We went out. I took my kids to Chick-fil-A. It was awesome. Um, There's so many things that we tend to give ourselves to that are simply a replica of the real thing. And we begin to see the heart of the problem. Tim Keller says that all of your problems come from where your heart is, what your heart is treasuring. All our problems come from this. And we're given this invitation, come worship the Lord. Let us sing to the Lord. This is David, the king of all Israel, and he's inviting his people. He's saying, worship God with great joy. He's saying that you've been putting your stake down for joy on all sorts of other things. You've been looking for joy and for satisfaction that they can't provide. I want you to come to me and I want you to find it here, says the Lord. Jackie Hill Perry says that joy has never been the problem. It was our hearts that bent us away from finding our ultimate enjoyment in who'd made us which crippled how, what, and who we got joy from. So joy isn't the problem. Desiring to be happy isn't the problem. Again, every one of us wants it because we're wired for it. It's not the issue. In fact, what David is saying here is he's saying, I want you to exclaim with such great joy. I want you to be filled with such joy that your heart bursts into outward worship. I want it to flow into praise, into audible noise. Right now, if you were to get a text message, and maybe your reminder should be off in the middle of church, but that's neither here nor there. Let's say you got a text message right now, and it said, all your student loans have been forgiven. You would have an audible, involuntary response. I feel like you caught the Holy Ghost right here in the middle of the service. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I want you to be filled with such joy, with such good news that you can't contain it. But I want you to know, just like David wanted his people to know, that that joy can only come from one place. It doesn't come from forgiven student loans or the ideal relationship. It comes from the rock of our salvation. 
Now, why does David describe our salvation as a rock? Well, firstly, a rock is stable, a foundation. There's an old hymn that says, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, that every other foundation that you build your joy upon will ultimately fall apart. It will ultimately sink, it will ultimately let you down. And that because it's a rock, it's a foundation, just like a foundation is necessary for a house, joy is not an accessory. It's the foundation of our lives. In fact, it is a central theme in the Bible that we are to know and love God and that through knowing and loving God, we enjoy God. Nearly every catechism, which by the way, is just a fancy Christian word for a question and answer set of beliefs. Every, every catechism for centuries has asked this one question, number one or number two. And I'm gonna give you like the very theological version and just like the, the more like, I guess, modern language version. The theological version is, what is the chief end of man? Or in other words, what is your very purpose on this earth? Why do you exist? And every single one of them says it's this, it's to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So it puts glory or worship and enjoyment right on the same level. That as we worship God, we find the greatest joy we possibly could have in God. And John Piper, in his great book, Desiring God, he took it a step further. He said, actually, I think it's that we glorify or we worship by enjoying him forever. That as we enjoy God and learn to enjoy God, we worship God with a greater heart of thankfulness. And you find your greatest purpose and joy comes in worshiping God and you stand on him as a steady rock. But also, a rock is a source. There's there's a callback here in Israel's history to the time in the wilderness. Israel had uh, been free from slavery in Egypt, and they're they're walking out in the wilderness. They wandered for 40 years. They're constantly complaining. There are people searching and looking for contentment. They're looking for a home. They're looking for satisfaction. That sounds like us, right? They're wandering around, and there's this point where they're complaining to Moses again, like kids on a road trip wanting to know when the trip's going to be over. They complain to Moses again. And, and finally, God says that he's going to stand on the rock and he tells them to strike the rock and water is going to flow out. Life is going to flow out. Satisfaction is going to flow out. And David carries this image over into 2 Samuel where he says, the Lord is my rock. The Lord is my salvation. The Lord is my joy. But what do you notice about when God commanded Moses to strike the rock. Who is standing on the rock? God. The only way for there to be water to flow from that rock, the only way to strike that rock was to strike God as well. Our joy comes from a Jesus who was struck, a Jesus who was on the cross, who was stricken with our sins, that the key to our joy is the cross. And this leads us to worship. I want you to notice three key points about worship from the beginning of Psalm 95. First of all, who does he invite? Say this with me. Oh, come let us sing. Not, oh, come let Stephen sing, or oh, come let Haven sing, or Faith sing, or Scott sing. Oh, come let us sing. This isn't golf. This is a team activity. This is a group project. Now, some of you hate group projects. We'll participate. How many of you were the person in the group project who did all the work and was mad at everybody else? Okay, let's see a few of you overachievers. You're just mad at everybody else. In this room, there are varying degrees of contentment and joy in Christ. There are varying degrees of daily worship. Some of you, Jesus is your everything. 
He's everything to you. And you can't help but praise him. Some of you are barely hanging on and you don't know the last time you were joyful. And some of us are, are simply going to Jesus for joy when the rest of life falls apart. We need to urge each other to look to Jesus for joy. This is a group project. We need to push each other towards finding our joy in Jesus alone because I get distracted I need reminding. You and I forget where our joy is found. But here's the really crazy thing about that. Unlike a group project where it seems to always be the same person, the person who's killing it usually changes. Today, you might be longing after Jesus with everything you have. You're having joyful time with him. And a year from now, you may not be. And the person that you encourage today may be the very person who encourages you tomorrow. We need to look to Jesus together as our greatest joy. We worship together. Secondly, worship is going to God himself. Verse two, let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. This is a huge deal because every other time in the Old Testament, nearly every other time, when we're we're told about going into the presence of God, it was a fearful sight. In, In Exodus, God wouldn't even let Moses see him. He had to see his back. When Isaiah saw the throne room of God, the train of God, which filled the entire room, he said it felt like he was being torn apart from the inside. And yet here, it says, come into the presence of God with thanksgiving. It's as if this is being portrayed as as joyful in a way that there's an access that they don't quite have yet, but they will one day have. He's looking forward to this forward access that you and I have through Christ. Hebrews 4, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That is access. You and I have access access to God. I used to love going to my grandma's house for Thanksgiving when I was a little kid. And, and, and I remember going, I never had to ask for a second helping of sweet potato pie. I, I'm the grandchild. I can have whatever I want. I, I'm getting anything. Matt, Matt and Sue are here with their grandkids today. They're going to get whatever they want to today. They want three helpings of ice cream at lunch. Send them back to the kids. Like It doesn't matter. You can go back, they heard that probably, you can go back again and again. Pastor Stephen said I could have three servings of ice cream. Um, You can go back again and again and again because you're an invited guest. You're welcome. If there's one thing God is not going to stop giving you, it is himself. He will give you more and more and more joy in him. So worship is taking the access you have to God and enjoying it taking advantage of it and showing gratefulness flowing from joy. The third thing we see about worship is that worship trains you for joy. It's a practice, just like reading the Bible, just like prayer, just like fasting. These are all practices that are meant to train us for joy. They're they're, they're to train us to be joyful because they change us. Now, an objection to Christianity at times is that sometimes our unbelieving neighbors will look and say, well, you know, you guys aren't all that different than... uh, unbelievers. Like, you know, sometimes you're just as cruel, you're just as mean, you're not all that generous, or are Christians really more happy than non-Christians? I have an unchristian friend who's just as philanthropic and serves just as much and does all the same things. So why does that really matter? Now, sometimes that's true. Sometimes it's true. But what this actually shows us is that we're not accepted by what we do either. We're not accepted because we're good people. We're accepted because God is gracious. Look, we can be hypocrites, we can fall short, but the point is is that God is gracious to sinners like you and me and our unbelieving neighbors. But what Tim Keller says is that it often there's a disconnect between belief and action. 
We know we're to be joyful, but we're not living like we're joyful. We know that we need to be free from money to be generous. We, we know that we need to, to find the power to be free from from power to, to give ourselves away. We need to give up status to serve. So there has to be a bridge between belief and character. And Keller says that if you want beliefs to actually produce character, they have to be driven into your heart through practices, spiritual disciplines that engage the entire person, mind, will, and emotions. You need a practice that drives joy into your heart. And that's the practice of singing and worshiping that we worship God, we sing these truths, that God is faithful, that God is good, that the God is the source of our joy, that God is our salvation. And what begins to happen as we drive those truths into our hearts is we start to believe them. And as we drive those truths into our hearts, we start to act on them. A fallacy when it comes to church is that, you know, hey, I'll go to church when I feel joyful. I'll go to church when I have it all together. I'll, I'll commit to being in community with others when I feel connected to them. That's a little bit like saying, I'm going to go to the gym when I feel strong. It doesn't work that way. It's a practice that crafts joy. Commitment crafts connectedness. Because if we're waiting to feel joyful or have it all together to come into the presence of God, you're going to wait forever. And I even want you to think about the, the order of our service on a Sunday. We have a call to worship. Everybody's dragging in, grabbing that last minute cup of coffee. It's nine o'clock. It's early. I get it. And we're called to look to God. And we look to God and we see his worth and we see his greatness and we see his goodness. And we start to kind of feel a little guilty. Anybody else have that feeling before? You're like, oh, I, I, he's, he seems really great and I'm not. And we have a time of confession where we just admit the, the truth out loud. And then there's this moment of grace where we say, but there's pardon in Jesus and we look to Jesus as our only hope. What's happening when we do that? It's training us. It's training you and I to look away from ourselves, to look away from our relationships, to look away from our jobs, to look away from our friends or our kids, or to look away from the potential we think we have to be good people and to look to the joy that Jesus offers. But the key question that may be rolling around in your head is why is Jesus alone able to give us this joy? Secondly, it's because we need the power for real joy. The power for real joy doesn't come from within. It doesn't come from the right job, the right relationship. But we see here, verse three, this is causal for the Lord is a great God. The reason that you can come, the reason that you can sing, the reason that you can make a joyful noise and come into his presence with thanksgiving and sing songs of praise is that our God is a mighty God. That's the second phrase from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, that Jesus, the wonderful counselor, is also a mighty God. You can have joy and worship that if being the wonderful counselor means he has a plan, being mighty God means he has the power to achieve that plan. And David does something in describing this great God. He does something that grabs her attention. He says, he's a great king above all gods. Now he shows how there's, and he lists out these different spheres of power in the world. He's not saying that all these other gods are legitimate. He's saying that we look to these other gods and, and there was all these tribal religions around the nation of Israel and, and all these tribal religions, they had a God for everything. There was a God for, for the afterlife and a God for the sky and a God for the sea and for the land and for war and for love and like left-handed fishermen. Everybody had a God. You get a God and you get a God. It's like the Oprah of gods. It, uh, it was this, the old iPhone commercial. There's, a, there's an app for that. There's a God for that. That's the way they approached the divine. 
And what you do when you view life like that, that there's a God for everything, is you go to the one you need when you need it. So there's war at the doorstep. You don't go to the God of war in a time of peace. You go to the God of war in a time of war. You want a, you want a spouse? You go to the God of love. You do that when you look at an area of your life and you really want it. And when we think about treating God that way, we treat God as a God that we think we can control. And that God is only good and useful if he gives us what we want when we want it. But what David tells us is our God is not a God like that. He's not a God in parts. He's not a God who's just over the sea or just over the land. He's not a God who's over the lows or the highs of your life. He is over it all, and he's the creator and the sustainer of all things. Everything is his. Colossians 1, verses 16 and 17, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, everything, were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. It reads like a legal contract. There is no wiggle room. He covers everything as the creator and sustainer of everything, including your happiness. God is the God over your joy, and he's the only one who has the power to give it to you. And what this does is it actually allows you to be content and happy in every other area of life. You're never going to be satisfied or joyful in anything unless God is your first joy. It's like C.S. Lewis said that you can only get second things by putting first things first. And it's amazing what happens when you choose joy in Jesus first and over anything else. If you want want greater joy in your marriage, you first have to have greater joy in Jesus. You want greater joy in your friendships, you first have to understand the friendship and the joy of Jesus. You want to have greater fulfillment in your job? You first have to find joy in Jesus. And seriously, I want want you to try this this week. You can apply this to any area of life, but let's say that that work's a struggle for you. Work's an idol, and you're you're an approval person. And your boss's approval or your coworker's approval means everything to you. What if you went into work this week and asked the question, how can I find joy in you, Jesus, through my work? Not in my boss's approval. Not in the accolades of others. And what you'll actually begin to find is that if you get that approval, it becomes sweeter because it's not everything to you. It becomes sweeter because the truest joy you could ever have, you already have. Uh, Another note, though, on on the power for real joy is that everything you see is an opportunity to worship. All the things that are listed here that covers pretty much the entire earth is an opportunity for you to worship. And it's a little bit like in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus directed the disciples, look at the birds. Look at the flowers. Look at the grass. He wanted them to behold them. Now, I, I'm a, I tend to be a very like intellectual, black and white, factual. Like my wife is, she, she's much more into beauty and like that's been so helpful for me to just learn to behold. And she'd be like, hey, look at this painting. I'm like, that, that's a painting. That tends to be my approach. If we would simply stop and behold and look, we would see how we can enter into the joy of God. What he's inviting him to do is he's saying, in the hand are the depths of the earth. In his hand are the depths of the earth. He's saying, this is the God who's the depths of the earth. Rejoice that he's God over your depths too. This is God who's the the God over the heights. Rejoice that he's mighty and he's God over what you don't understand. 
Rejoice that he's the God of the sea and that he is the God over what terrifies you. Rejoice that he's the God over dry land, that he's also the God over everyday life. I just want to challenge you this week to slow down, to look around and ask how the simple and small things in the world can help you find joy in Jesus. Lastly, I want to look at the paradox of real joy. There's a, there's a paradox here in verse 6. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. And when we think of joy, we don't typically think of kneeling. We don't typically think of bowing. We think of jumping and exciting and raising hands. But he says, be humble. And the paradox here is how can you be a humble person and a joyful person? How can a humble person be joyful? It's, it's a recognition that you're surrendering your own idea of joy that you quit looking for joy where it can't be found and you look to the only one who can give it, Jackie Hill Perry. Again, she says, he is so much greater than the greatest thing and much more glorious than the most glorious glory the eyes could see. Knowing this, he becomes the aim of all our doing. Because if God is bigger than we can imagine, we are wasting our time to chase after something or someone lesser than him. Real joy only comes through humble surrender. Say it again, real joy only comes through humble surrender. When you give up control, when you give up your ideas of what joy is to get a better joy. And we see that Jesus gives you joy through his humility. I mean, this is the heart of the gospel of John. And, and, and John, toward the end, we've been covering that this fall. John tells the people, the reason you should believe is, is all the mighty things he's done. I've, I've written these things so you'll believe them. He, he, he's a mighty God. But we see numerous times in the Gospel of John that this mighty God wants to give you joy. And we don't have time to unpack all of these, but he keeps coming and saying, I want you to be joyful. I want you to be happy. And in John 17, he says these words. He says, I want my joy fulfilled in them. He's not just talking about his disciples. He's talking about you and me. He wants his joy fulfilled in them. Us. He wants you to be happy. He wants to give you his joy. And this is the beauty of Advent, that he does this by becoming a baby in a manger who's also the Lord of glory. He's the Lord of your joy who draws you in to know and love you. And we see this in verse 7 where it says, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. That's such a beautiful picture. A sheep with a shepherd, that we belong to Christ, that we are his and he's not letting us go. We see God's commitment to us, that he knows his sheep. But we also see his care for us, that just like sheep, he leads us to a pasture and a shepherd would lead his sheep to a place to graze and be satisfied. Jesus wants to lead you to the greatest joy imaginable and can only be found if he is your God. When you give up on finding it on your own, now, we don't have time to read the rest of Psalm 95, but the psalm, end of Psalm 95 is actually quoted in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 in relation to rest and satisfaction. And there's a command here in, in, in verse 7, in the back half of it. It says, today if you hear his voice, verse 8, do not harden your hearts. Don't harden your hearts like the people in Meribah. Don't, don't harden your hearts toward the invitation of God to come and find real joy. And we see as it goes on further that those who harden their hearts, who reject the joy that God wants to give them, are never going to rest. They're not going to find joy. 
They're not going to find satisfaction. And the same idea gets picked up in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, but, but maybe, maybe that's why you don't have the joy you hope for, is you're rejecting the only one who can give it. But in Hebrews, there's a promise that real rest and real satisfaction and real joy that you and I all want can be had in the one who satisfied what needed to be satisfied between us and God. That you can have real joy through the mighty God who lived the perfect life that you couldn't live, who died on the cross to satisfy the wrath of God and rose again as mighty God to give you joy that you really want. So as we close, just, just three, three steps for us. First of all, come to Jesus. This is an invitation to come find real joy in Jesus. So come to Jesus. Secondly, surrender to Jesus. Surrender your ideas of joy to him and find real joy in him. And thirdly, enjoy Jesus. This is an invitation for us this morning to enjoy God, to be satisfied in our souls, and to let that come out in songs of praise. Let's pray. Thank you.